Welcome to Navara FM. I'm Navara's Head of Articles, Charlotte England. This month, we've been looking at the ways in which disabled people are marginalised by the extractive social structures that entrap us all, as part of a focus series called Disability, It's Political. From helping us imagine an anti-capitalist future to exposing our interdependence in the present, the series is a primer on a politics the left usually ignores. We've recorded audio versions of every article in the series and selected eight of them to feature in this unusual Navara FM, which spans topics like mental health, our toxic work culture, the philosopher Peter Singer, sex worker rights, sign language, and why autism is not a disease. Head to navaramedia.com to read every article in the series and check out two special episodes of Downstream on portrayals of disability in pop culture and on anti-capitalist analyses of disability, hosted by Ash Sarkar and Michael Walker. Disability Politics are Anti-Capitalist Politics by Ellen Clifford A common complaint down generations of disabled campaigners is the perceived failure of the wider left to engage seriously with disability politics. This may seem unfair to those non-disabled allies who have actively fought Tory cuts or proactively taken steps to improve access and inclusion. There are even groundbreaking examples of non-disabled campaigners developing political education around disability. But it remains the case that disabled people make up 21% of the UK population and are the world's largest minority, yet only relatively few people almost exclusively disabled activists and academics, have taken a historical materialist analysis to the question of disabled people's oppression. It is a constant source of frustration that those who hold progressive ideas in all other areas still tend to understand disability in line with the negative attitudes and prejudices common throughout wider society. There is a gulf between these prejudices and the understanding politicised disabled people have developed of their own oppression. Levels of familiarity with disabled people's own understanding of disability are immediately evident by the language people use. The instant that anyone in Britain uses the term people with disabilities instead of disabled people, they are marked out as either not knowing, or worse, refuting the social model of disability. The social model of disability is the holy grail of disabled people's politics in Britain. Traditional approaches to disability locate it as a deficit within an individual person, in effect blaming the person for the difficulties they experience in life. The social model turns this on its head. The social model takes disability out of the person and locates it instead within capitalist society as a form of oppression. According to the social model, disability is created by structures that exclude and marginalise people whose differences either lead directly to, or are associated with, lower productivity in the workplace. From this flows attitudes that other disabled people and regard our lives as worth less. The fact that disability continues to sit on the margins of society, generally regarded as a special case relevant to only a few, is testament to the dominance of ideas that serve the interests of the ruling class. Disabled people often describe it as a light bulb moment when we first discover the social model. After years of internalising negative attitudes about our human value, we suddenly realise that we are not the problem. The problem is society, and it is society that needs to change. It is an intensely liberatory concept that translates easily. As a tool for achieving social change, it is also extremely effective, transforming disability from a matter of personal tragedy into an issue that is both deeply political and of collective importance. The social model powerfully exposes the brutality of capitalism in its treatment of members of the working class who are unable to be exploited for profit. It is therefore disappointing that there is little interest in it beyond the disabled people's movement. Perhaps people have heard the term the social model and think they understand it. Perhaps they assume it simply means that there are socio-economic causes of disability. But it is so much more than that. Impairments and illnesses are caused by capitalism. Through imperialist wars, poverty, poor working conditions and damage to the environment. But they also exist independent of socio-economic circumstance. 
Disability is not a form of oppression that can be overcome just by removing stigma. Inclusion of disabled people requires dedicated investment, fundamental changes to normative standards, as well as to the structures and systems embedded within mainstream society. The social model draws a distinction between impairment and disability. Here, impairment refers to the physical, mental or cognitive conditions that disabled people live with, while disability is the level of oppression that society imposes on us on top of our impairments. This is why we use the term disabled people, because we are disabled by society. There is no denying the very real pain and distress that many disabled people experience. The exact nature of this will depend upon the particular condition the individual has, and even then it can change from person to person. The term disabled people encompasses a huge spectrum, from people with mobility impairments to autistic people, to people living with mental distress, to people with energy-limiting chronic illnesses or other health conditions. What unites us are our experiences of oppression, such as barriers to employment and education, prejudice and poverty. There is an intrinsic relationship between disability and poverty, where poverty is both cause and consequence of disability. Disabled people in Britain are now at least three times more likely to live in severe material deprivation than non-disabled people. Moreover, poverty levels are one of the factors named by the Office for National Statistics as contributing to the way that disabled people died disproportionately from COVID-19, even after accounting for health and age-related factors. The dominant idea in society that disabled people are inevitably excluded without the same life chances as other people because we have something wrong with us is socially created. The category of disability did not exist until the rise of capitalism. People with impairment or illness fared differently depending on their individual condition and its intersection with socio-economic factors. It was the standardisation of labour that resulted in the creation of a category for those unable to fit productively in the workplace. As Roddy Slorach tells us in his book, A Very Capitalist Condition, A History and Politics of Disability, the word normal referred to nothing more than a right-angle carpenter's square before the Industrial Revolution. The cost of supporting people who may never labour productively in the workplace is one that capital will always resent and do its utmost to minimise. At times of recession, it is a cost that will be in the firing line, as disabled people in Britain directly experienced under austerity. Views of disability that locate it as a problem within an individual successfully disguise both its wider relevance and its deeply political nature. The question of what happens to a person who is unable to earn their own living through employment is of significance to the entire working class. When this is recognised, it can lead to powerful displays of solidarity. This is one reason why Hitler had to end Action T4, the Nazi programme that mass-murdered disabled German citizens. Knowing that old age, industrial accident or being wounded on the front line would lead to a swift extermination had become a concern for the German populace. One of the most notable protests that happened against Nazi rule occurred in a place named Absberg when the grey Action T4 buses turned up for the residents of the local disability institution. The residents were regarded as part of the community and their neighbours did not want them killed. Tragically, they were not able to save them. But concerned reports filed by local Nazi party officials reveal the pressure that grassroots opposition achieved. Although individual killings of disabled people by their physicians continued until after the Allies' invasion of Germany, Hitler ordered the suspension of the T4 killings on 24th of August 1941. The individual model of disability dominant within capitalist society also obscures the fact that disability is not static. Disablement is classified according to the possession of an impairment that limits one's ability to function in day-to-day life. The impact of an impairment on a person's ability to function is subject to socio-economic factors and can therefore change. For example, the wide availability of glasses in Britain means that many people with limited vision are not disabled by sight loss. Research has shown that disabled people were less likely to be in employment in Britain after we moved from an economy dominated by manual industry to the customer service sector. This has corresponded with a rise in the reported prevalence of disability and additional spending on disability benefits. A traditional argument of the left is that Thatcher pushed people onto incapacity benefit 
in order to manipulate the unemployment statistics. A more pressing issue in the here and now is that employment has been shown to mask disability or incapacity. The modern workplace is moving rapidly towards greater insecurity, greater standardisation, greater stress, longer hours and lower control for workers, at the same time as lowering the burden of responsibility on employers to protect workers' rights and provide benefits such as sick pay. It is no wonder that disability prevalence is rising as growing numbers of people find themselves unable to compete within prevailing labour market conditions. The reasons why individuals are unable to compete then become identified as disability. It is somewhat ironic that conservative politicians often seem to understand disability better than the left. Under a capitalist economy, there are very real contradictions between demands for equality and the way that labour is valued. These frequently erupt into protests, when every so often a Tory minister will suggest that people with learning difficulties should be paid below the minimum wage. Their argument is that this would benefit the thousands of people with learning difficulties wanting to work, but currently excluded from employment due to lower productivity rates. The only ways around this issue, whether forcing employers to take on disabled workers, subsidising disabled people's employment, or creating exceptions for the payment of lower wages, all come into a direct conflict with values of equality. The truth is that following the intensification of labour over recent decades, there is now an impossible circle to be squared in order to equally value and respect disabled people within a labour market driven by the pursuit of profit. Respect and dignity are earned through hard work. This is drummed into popular consciousness through political rhetoric and the media. It is also why so many disabled people who can't find employment are so desperate to work. Alongside popular ideas about human worth, there also exists a deep human instinct to support each other and to share resources with those who cannot survive on their own. This contradicts the narrative of individualism that upholds capitalism. The myth of our essentially selfish nature encourages competition that divides the working class and prevents us from realising the strength of our shared interests. All people are interdependent, but as Mike Oliver, the disabled researcher often described as the godfather of the social model, points out, disabled people are dependent to a greater degree than others. We exist of necessity within social networks that are more strongly interdependent. This gives us a unique perspective on society, as does the oppression that casts us as outsiders, looking in on the rest of society and its dysfunctionality. Additionally, some forms of neurodivergence actually lead to a greater ability to identify and a greater motivation to challenge social injustice. The question of disability sits at the heart of the struggle between the few and the many. It represents the cruelty of capitalism in its disregard for the lives it casts aside in its pursuit of profit, justified by its individualistic model of disability that blames us for our own disadvantage under a deeply unequal and unfair system. The precarity of the lives of the many under such a system is neatly embodied in the fact that anyone can become disabled and thus be thrust into the situation of having to prove your worthiness of support to survive. But this isn't a moral question. And disabled people don't want you to care about us because you think you should. We want more people to start questioning the ideas about disability they have grown up with and to understand the importance of disability within anti-capitalist struggle. Understanding disability involves interrogating the very fabric of capitalism. It also helps us to understand that an alternative is possible, one where we are not confined by the pursuit of profit and where interdependent social structures allow us the freedom to fulfil our personal potential. Winning such a society cannot be achieved by any single group. It requires collective action. It's a journey we need to take together. Yes, Mental Health Counts as Disability, by Misha Fraser-Carroll. When I worked on mental health campaigns at university, I would often advise students with mental distress to seek support from the disability service. If a student had a diagnosis of, say, anxiety, which was staggeringly common in the student population, they might be entitled to reasonable adjustments, like extended deadlines or their own private room for exams. 
but the suggestion that mental health fell under disability usually provoked the same response. You mean it counts? Many students were reluctant to accept that mental distress could qualify them as disabled. Some felt identifying as disabled would be taking up space or co-opting a label that wasn't theirs. Others, no doubt, were deterred by the disabled stigma that surrounds the word. At least one in five UK students has a mental health condition, but the membership of our Disabled Students campaign was decidedly small. Outside of universities, this confusion is reflected in mainstream conversations about mental health too. Popular mental health writing, usually memoirs and personal essays, scarcely mentions disability. None of this is helped by dominant recovery narratives, which reify mental health conditions as an unfortunate temporary and individual state that, with a positive mindset, we will hopefully quickly recover from. It's also further complicated by an artificially imposed binary between body and brain, which positions our perceptions, behaviour and emotions as entirely separate from the more objective medical facts of our physical bodies. It is important to note that even on a legal level, mental distress falls squarely within the criteria for disability, as outlined by the Equality Act 2010. The legislation, which covers England, Wales and Scotland, defines disability as a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do normal daily activities. Of course, by this definition, mental health counts. But to truly interrogate the relationship between mental health and disability as an identity, we need to look beyond the law and inject politics into the conversation. This requires engaging with the way that disability is constructed as a category. A good place to start is the social model of disability, a framework for understanding that evolved from conversations between disabled people, activists and sociologists in the 1970s. First committed to writing by a UK organisation called the Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation, the original definition resisted the dominant medical model and explained, In our view, it is society which disables physically impaired people. Disability is something imposed on top of our impairments, by the way that we are unnecessarily isolated and excluded from full participation in society. While members believe they had physical impairments, they said the act of disablement was overwhelmingly a social one, imposed by a disabledist society through acts like the segregation of disabled people and the refusal to make even basic adjustments like building ramps. The most textbook illustration of the social model is the image of a wheelchair user confronted with a set of stairs at the entrance to a building. According to the social model, the problem isn't that the person uses a wheelchair, the problem is that the building has stairs. The social model is far from a perfect or holistic framework for understanding disability. But in the history of disabled activism, it represented an important paradigm shift, away from locating the fact of disablement inside people's bodies and instead looking at the way that society systematically excludes and oppresses people because their bodies and brains don't fit a specific norm. This has implications for how we think about the disablement of people with mental distress. Just as our society is constructed around those whose physical bodies work in a certain way, it is also built to centre people who think, feel and act a certain way. In the same way that other disabilities can see you institutionalised and excluded from mainstream society, if you are suicidal, have compulsions or hear voices, you might be detained under the Mental Health Act and forcibly put on a ward. Just as full-time 9-to-5 work is inaccessible to people with, say, chronic illnesses, depression or anxiety can stop a person from getting out of bed and making it to the office. And like other types of disability, many people who experience mental distress are similarly reliant on gatekeeping doctors for access to medication or therapy. The more political lens of the social model reveals clear parallels, in fact significant overlaps, in our embodied experiences under a capitalist, disabledist society. The disabled community has never been an exclusive club. It's a space where people understand and acknowledge the diversity of disability and how it manifests. When people with mental health conditions question if their experiences count, they're often comparing themselves against an imagined idea of the archetypal, genuinely disabled person. More often than not, this idea perpetuates misconceptions around physical disability too, forgetting that up to 70% of all disabilities in the UK are invisible. 
Scarcity mindset should play no role in our organising and community building. There is enough room for all of us under the disability umbrella. This leads to a crucial note on solidarity. By calling ourselves disabled, people with mental distress nod towards a broader community of people who are oppressed in varied but interlinked and overlapping ways. It connotes a specific political understanding of what it means to live as a pathologised person in our society and can be a powerful tool for solidarity, resisting all narratives of us v them. There is no obligation to define as disabled. Some might feel that despite having a mental health condition, they just don't come up against significantly disabling barriers in their day-to-day life. Others might see their mental health as a more transient state rather than a part of their identity. But the choice is theirs and the door is open to them. By all means, it counts. Our toxic work culture isn't just harming disabled people, it's harming everyone. By Sophie K. Rosa. When she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2015, Louise was working constantly and constantly thinking about her work at the tech company that employed her. Having felt constantly sick for a long time, all the while being too consumed by her job to seek medical attention, Louise finally made an appointment with a doctor, which led to her diagnosis. She now sees the toxic work culture she was subjected to, the long hours, constantly being on call, checking her phone on holiday, as having both contributed to and exacerbated her disability. The relationship between disability and work is complex. Many jobs and workplaces are exclusionary and inaccessible, and yet disabled people are put under pressure by the state to seek employment rather than rely upon the woefully inadequate benefit system. Disabled people who cannot or do not want to work because of their health, often face discrimination, derided by both the government and the press as so-called benefit scroungers or fakers. Attitudes to work under capitalism are absolutely core to the way that people with impairments are disabled by society, says Steve Graby, a disability researcher at the University of Leeds. When paid work is seen as definitional of adult and citizen status, he explains, exclusion from it is one form of oppression that creates disability. He notes that, traditionally, the disabled people's movement has fought to remove barriers to employment, but emphasises that this approach cannot be the end goal. Some people will remain excluded. Liberation from work, not access to it, must be the horizon. While this should no doubt be our overarching ambition, in society as it currently stands, removing barriers to paid employment remains a vital aim. The disability unemployment gap is currently 28.6% in large part due to inaccessible working conditions and workplaces. Indeed, whilst all workplaces are legally required to make reasonable adjustments, many remain inaccessible for people with wide-ranging disabilities. The government's Access to Work scheme offers discretionary grants to support disabled people to take up or remain in work, but campaigners say the scheme itself is often difficult to access. Five years ago, Becca Jiggins, an academic and disability employment lawyer, set up Just Reasonable Limited, a non-profit law firm aiming to challenge ableism in the workplace. She argues that there is a pervasive narrative of disability faking, obstructing people from receiving reasonable adjustments for their well-being. The goodwill of a manager is pretty essential for disabled inclusion in the workplace, she explains. Initially, Louise didn't tell her current employers about her MS when they hired her to work part-time in their clothing shop. When she eventually did, they questioned the seriousness and even existence of her impairment. To help combat their ignorance, Louise printed out some informational booklets, but one manager told her she wouldn't read them and instead handed her a book about a diet that claimed to cure any illness. What's more, during the pandemic, Louise's bosses asked her to work more hours a request she declined, knowing that it would put her health at risk. Rather than accepting this, she says, they began to claim she wasn't dedicated to the business and harassed her on a daily basis with constant nitpicking and screaming down the phone, both during and outside of her working hours. This very high-stress environment caused a decline in Louise's mental health and an MS relapse that led her to having to sign herself off work in April. Following this, her bosses began periodically withholding her pay, 
and sending almost daily communications asking her when she would be returning to work. My relapse has continued, explains Louise, mostly because I'm so stressed about returning to work. This kind of experience, says Jiggins, reflects our culture of work in general. It is one that frames workplace discrimination as the worker not trying hard enough and the inability to work as a moral failing or a character flaw. Working hard and earning money, she says, is culturally linked to an individual's inherent value, a principle that harms everyone, but especially disabled people. Graby agrees, exclusion is the other side of the coin to exploitation. Those who cannot be profitably exploited are seen as useless, and a huge ideological apparatus rests on this. Reflecting on her time working at tech company Blizzard Entertainment before her diagnosis, Louise says the very high-pressure workplace culture was encouraged by core values, such as work hard, play hard, and the gently manipulative idea that we're a family. The company has a blue logo, and one of the catchphrases, Louise recalls, was I bleed blizzard blue. Under capitalism, work is considered central to our very existence, and disabled people's struggle is not only against exploitative workplaces, but against the obligation to work at all. Through punitive benefits regimes and oppressive assessment processes, the state often forces people into work. Whilst not in work, social security often leaves people struggling to survive. Louise says the idea that if you're on unemployment benefits, you're just a slacker, has been shoved down my throat. As a result, she says, she feels compelled to stay in work that's making me physically ill. Considering the relevance of anti-work politics to the disabled people's movement, Jiggins says... Integration into an imperfect system is a means to an end. It's never going to be an end unto itself. What's more important, she says, is to move away from work being the essential defining feature of our society. Graby says that the left as a whole needs to rethink its attitude to work and its relationship to disability. Referring to the Labour Party, he points to how work ideology is right there in their name. The idea of working-class pride can diminish the fact that work itself is an inherently exclusionary and exploitative system, he says. Indeed, labour movements have much to learn from disabled people's struggles. Graby notes that resisting the divide-and-conquer tactic that is imbued in the ideology of work, of the moral employed versus the immoral scroungers, is critical to the disabled people's movement. And it must be to the broader labour movement too. Solidarity between exploited and excluded sections of the working class is vital, he says, adding that if any group of people are to be seen as parasites, it should be the ruling class. The Boycott Workfare campaign, opposing workfare policies in the UK, in which unpaid work was forced upon people receiving benefits, is one such example of working class solidarity transcending these divide-and-conquer tactics. Through campaigning and direct action beginning in 2010, the group had forced the government to scrap a number of workfare schemes by 2016. In the immediate fight for a post-work society, Jiggins believes that holding bosses to account for discrimination against disabled people, as well as broader reforms such as the four-day week, are critical battlegrounds. The pandemic has highlighted how capitalism not only creates disability, but then neglects it and then frames it as a personal failing, she says. As a result, the structures and those who profit from creating disability take no responsibility for it. Whether the reason for struggle is disabled people's liberation or something else, she says, the issue is exactly the same. What can we do to create flourishing, to enhance everybody's experience of being alive for a short period of time? So What's the Problem with Peter Singer? by Lucy Burke Six out of ten people who have died during the pandemic in the UK were disabled. Disability discrimination has been normalised every time underlying health conditions has been evoked to explain away death. And this fundamental failure to recognise the equal value of disabled people's lives sits within a broader context of ten years of austerity and an ideological war on anyone in receipt of state support. Cuts to health and social care funding have been linked to 120,000 excess deaths since 2010. Meanwhile, the pandemic has exposed and exacerbated the grave and systematic violations of disabled people's rights 
that were identified by a UN committee investigation of the British government in 2016. Most significantly, the basic right to life via access to critical care. It is not an overstatement to say that discrimination is literally killing disabled people in this country. It is in this context that media coverage of the work of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer feels not only inappropriate, but deeply insensitive to disabled people. Media engagement with Singer, including Navarra Media, has tended to focus on his highly influential work on animal rights and his views on veganism. Singer is notable for arguing that personhood, an attribution that provides rights, protections, privileges and moral consideration, should be extended to non-human animals, such as primates, that exhibit specific characteristics. Self-awareness, the capacity to plan, form alliances and relationships, manifest grief and anger, and to learn sign language. But most engagement with Singer's philosophy of personhood fails to fully acknowledge the significance of his work in contributing to a culture in which the value of disabled people's lives is viewed as a matter for debate rather than a given, and reflects a broader failure to engage meaningfully with disability activism and activists whose work has, for example, been vital in challenging the economic and ideological justifications of austerity and highlighting its brutal human costs. The significance of Singer's philosophy is that it decouples the concept of personhood from species being, enabling the philosopher to argue that some non-human animals should be endowed with the rights and protections that personhood affords. But the separation of the category of personhood from species, i.e. being a human, is also central to Singer's work on the impact of modern medical technologies on traditional ethical assumptions. In his book, Rethinking Life and Death, Singer argues that the religious principle of the sanctity of life is increasingly redundant in a world in which life can be sustained artificially, for example, on a mechanical ventilator. Instead, he argues that decision-making at both the beginning and end of life should be informed by his criterial view of personhood. In other words, whether the human whose life is in question possesses the specific attributes Singer associates with personhood. Rationality, self-awareness, being able to perceive oneself through time, anticipating and desiring a future, and fear of death. Many people find Singer's work, particularly his contribution to the animal rights movement, compelling. However, whilst a lot of us might agree that the extension of personhood to the great apes is entirely justified, Singer also uses the ethical dilemmas presented by new medical technologies to make a case for the permissibility of infanticide of disabled babies up to a month after birth, on the basis that infants are not yet persons. Singer acknowledges parental choice in this situation, but his argument goes beyond simply suggesting that killing disabled infants, such as those born with conditions such as spina bifida, is ethically permissible, to arguing that in some cases it's right to end those lives. In a much-quoted passage in his book Practical Ethics, for instance, he argues, when the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second. Therefore, if killing the haemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, it would, according to the total view, be right to kill them. Singer is not talking here about infants born with conditions that are incompatible with life itself, but about infants with, for example, Down syndrome, a condition that is entirely compatible with a life as diverse, rich and various as any other person's. His justification is based on the assumption that disability is only a cause of suffering, that being disabled is incompatible with a good quality of life, that it can only negatively impact upon the quality of life of a disabled person's family and that it presents an unnecessary social and economic burden. Infanticide is offered as a rational solution to the problem of disability, as if killing a disabled baby and replacing them with a non-disabled sibling is an obvious, easy and sensible choice. Disabled people have tried on numerous occasions to engage with Singer, to challenge the idea that a disabled life is diminished and characterised solely by loss, deficit or suffering. He has participated in these conversations but his view of disability remains unchanged, although he acknowledges that using the phrase defective to describe disabled children is no longer acceptable. 
yet he maintains a particularly visceral distaste for the lives of learning disabled people, comparing them to dogs and pigs, and most recently justifying rape on the basis that if someone is incapable of understanding informed consent, there is no moral harm in subjecting that person to non-consensual sex. A recent article in the British Medical Journal sets out the inequalities experienced by learning disabled people admitted to hospital with COVID-19 in comparison with the general population. It reveals that they were 37% less likely to receive non-invasive respiratory support, 40% less likely to be intubated, and 50% less likely to receive critical care in an intensive care unit. They had a 56% increased risk of dying in hospital and died more quickly, even when their general health prior to hospitalisation was better than their non-disabled comparators. The authors of the paper conclude that these excess deaths are the result of significant disparities in healthcare. From a disability rights perspective, indeed from any position which claims to have a commitment to equality at its core, Singer's view of disability is unconscionable and profoundly dangerous, entangled as it is with the economic logic of his brand of preference utilitarianism. We have seen the deathly consequences of this kind of assumption about disabled people's lives played out during the pandemic in the imposition of do not resuscitate notices and the rationing of treatment and access to critical care. Singer should be held to account for these views and their influence. We will never achieve equality and social justice for all, whilst disabled people's experiences, agency and oppression are marginalised or erased within social movements and the media. Britain's inhumane benefit system is giving people PTSD by Jay Watts. If you want to screw up someone's mental health, there is a basic four-part formula. First, you deprive the person of the means to feel safe. Second, you lower their status in relation to other people. Third, you make them feel that the reasons for their predicament are their fault. Fourth, you deprive them of a space outside the situation to see what is going on. This sounds like a dystopian fantasy, but it is the lived reality of many benefits claimants, and it is demonstrably making people both sick and sicker. What evidence is there for this claim, and why is now a pivotal moment in deciding whether what happens next makes the situation better or worse? First, the evidence. Welfare has been grossly underfunded for years. It is difficult to emphasise how bad the situation is. It is common to hear of claimants having to choose between feeding the kids or themselves, or turning the fridge off to quickly switch the heating on. The baseline shame and anxiety of not having the means to live with a sense of dignity had been dampened somewhat by the £20 increase in universal credit that started during the pandemic. However, This is being removed at the very moment when inflation and living costs are on the rise, plunging even more households into poverty. This means that the cancellation of the uplift is in effect a downlift, a double cut, and one that makes a joke of the government's stated interest in mental health. Why? While psychological precarity and social precarity are inextricably intertwined with one another meaning that equity of means must be the first step in any coherent mental health policy. Second, it is not only that income on universal credit will decrease relative to current income, it is that income will decrease for some, but increase for others. This is because the government is fudging what it has repeatedly been told will be a disaster by implementing an increase for people on universal credit who are in work via changing the taper level. Whilst it is fantastic that people on benefits will receive more, The move widens the gap between the working poor and, by virtue of the provision change, the workless, who are treated as worth less. This has dangerous connotations of the strivers versus skivers discourse, which continues to wreak havoc, not only on welfare provision, but claimants' minds. This brings us to the third point. The way that welfare policy now governs claimants is not just via denying them the means to live comfortably, something that is rather bizarrely conceptualised as incentivising claimants to seek work more earnestly. 
Welfare governmentality also works by injecting precarity into the psyche because it doesn't allow for the situation to be as it is. It insists on constant upward trajectory, the core neoliberal fantasy, which is not only exhausting and demoralising, but maddening when there are no jobs to be had or someone remains too ill to work. Being on benefits now is more than a full-time job because it's near impossible to turn off as a demand. The practical demands for constant updates and activities, such as applying for multiple jobs you know you won't get and aren't well enough to do, are bad enough. But the psychological violence is even worse. As Lynn Friedley and Robert Stern showed in a landmark paper, the DWP now demands an upbeat, go-getting mentality, where any psychological traits that are deemed market unsuitable, such as despair, are to be excised. The cost of not doing this is punishment via sanctions. Many claimants have welfare-induced PTSD as a consequence. Fluctuating between anxious self-states, trying to meet the requirements of government, hypervigilance at being judged as deficient or fraudulent, and depressive collapses as the moral accusation that the system implies starts to be felt personally. Mental illness, at its core, thrives via attacking the self. You're a terrible person. No one believes you. You're a failure. If environments that we live in send out these messages, sooner or later we internalise them and enact them on ourselves via thoughts or inner voices. The net consequence? Both individuals and society become sick or sicker. That is, unless we have a space outside what is being done to us to see our situation and depersonalise it, in which case we can keep our sense of self safer for that bit longer. The state, however, has drastically cut access to these spaces. They have done this, most crucially, by cutting funding for disabled people's organisations and community infrastructure. They have done this via the neoliberalisation of mental health provision, the traditional last refuge for those most let down by society. In a fury of producing ever quicker, faster and cheaper talking therapies to mop up the mental damage of neoliberalism, the government has drawn funding away from those most in need. It is very difficult now to access a space where one can speak freely. Instead, the tasks of therapy are often pre-written by therapy protocols, the funding of which derives from a fiscal promise to be cost-efficient by getting people back to work, which shapes goals. A similar ideology is central to the recovery agenda, which now dominates mental health ideology. Again, the overwhelming emphasis is on that ultimate neoliberal fantasy, constant upward progression, which in this case means discharge from mental health services via recovery colleges for people who often need what was once available, proper long-term support. Many people have relapsed, been hospitalised or attempted suicide as a consequence. Despite all this, disabled people's organisations have never been more active, with social media aiding the distribution of what psychiatric survivors have long argued for, a renewed social model of disability and indeed madness. With public attitudes having considerably softened to the unemployed, a pattern we saw emerging even before the pandemic, and younger generations passionate about mental health, we have a real opportunity to create a levelling agenda that puts dignity first and fiscal contribution, well, nowhere near any discussion of what it means to be valuable as a human being. To do this, we have to join up the dots in public thinking to ensure everyone clearly knows that if you suppress people's means to survive, you suppress their spirit and make society sicker. Sex Worker Rights are Disability Rights by Sophie K. Rosa An appeal court recently overturned a ruling that said a care worker would not be breaking the law if they supported their client, C, a 27-year-old autistic and learning disabled man, to make a booking with a sex worker. The nuanced and sensitive case, which would have meant other carers who helped disabled people to visit sex workers would not be committing a criminal offence, spanned two different courts in many months, and has raised numerous important questions around human rights, autonomy, sex and disability. However, 
Some have framed it simplistically as pitting the rights of disabled people against the rights of women. Sex worker exclusionary radical feminists, SWERFs, some of them disabled, have argued to journalists and on Twitter that the original ruling prioritised a man's right to pay for sex over women's rights, which they believe are threatened by the existence of sex work. Describing the ruling as part of the renewed objectification of the female, campaigners say it fueled misogyny and could be degrading for care workers. Missing from the debate were the voices of sex workers and any acknowledgement that a disproportionate number are disabled. Sex workers are disabled, by and large, argues Lydia Caradonna, a disabled sex worker, activist and writer. Lots of us are neurodiverse, lots of us have chronic illnesses. Sex work attracts disabled women, she explains, because it can be flexible, autonomous and well-paid, making it more accessible to some people than other workplaces. By prioritising moral debates around a man's right to access a service over concerns about the safety of the community providing those services, sex work abolitionists are failing to act in the interests of the many women and disabled people who choose to work in the industry, Caradonna argues. Jason Domino is epileptic, dyslexic and has dyscalculia. He says being disabled was a massive reason why he became a sex worker. Other jobs were often exclusionary. Pinky, who has chronic fatigue syndrome, left her job as a secretary in the NHS to become a sex worker. I really enjoyed my work, but my brain fog just got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore, she tells Navara Media, adding that her energy levels and ability to concentrate made it impossible to get through the day. For some disabled women who have been the hardest hit by benefit cuts, sex work can be a life-saving option. A small group of vocal swerfs who on Twitter pledge their allegiance to anti-sex worker groups such as Nordic Model Now and notoriously transphobic groups such as Transgender Trend are frequently quoted in the press. Pinky sees it as cruel that these women are trying to stamp out what is in many cases a last resort profession for women who have been failed by the state. It's also misogynistic, she adds, to say that women who have chosen to do sex work are deluded or don't know their best option in the current system. Caradonna sees anti-sex work views on C's case as so reductionist. Focusing on the morality of the court ruling, she says, shows these feminists are stuck in second-wave feminism, hung up on asking, is sex a right? Rather than thinking critically about work and power in the context of capitalism and the patriarchy. I'm quite impressed by the fact sex work abolitionists continually manage to make the sex worker rights movement, a labour rights movement, about one man's penis, rather than systemic issues, she says. Disabled or not, clients are clients and workers are workers, Domino points out, which entails a power dynamic. Disabled sex workers, often more so than non-disabled sex workers, depend upon clients for survival, and all clients pose a potential threat to their safety. Rather than a client's right to buy sex, Caradonna says, if we're talking about sex work and disabled people, the real big issue is the fact that current criminalisation really screws over workers who are disabled. Under current laws, selling sex is legal, but most activities that surround it are criminalised. So disabled workers, who are more likely to need additional help, says Caradonna, whether that's a driver, a carer to be around, help booking in appointments, any kind of assistance, or if they want to work in a place that has a management structure, are disproportionately criminalised. As a result, disabled sex workers are more likely to have their money taken under the Proceeds of Crime Act, have their workplaces shut down, or have people like partners implicated as pimps under the law. For Domino, who has epilepsy, Nordic model sex work laws, which outlaw buying, criminalising the client but not the worker, and are supported by many swerfs, would mean increased danger. Under the Nordic model, if I had a seizure in front of a client... Would that client feel comfortable calling emergency services? Or would they leave the room, close the door and pretend they were never there, he asks. Even under the current level of criminalisation in the UK, he says, a flatmate could feel the same way because facilitating sex work is illegal. These are the issues we should be talking about, not whether or not disabled men deserve to get their dick sucked, says Caradonna. In conversations about disability and sex work, the focus needs to be on decriminalisation for workers' rights and safety, 
increasing the accessibility of all jobs, and fighting for a world in which everyone has what they need to survive, argue the disabled sex workers interviewed by Navarra Media. In these struggles, Caradonna hopes that the disability rights movement and the sex worker rights movement can unite. It's quite annoying that we don't hear a lot from the disability rights movement about sex work, when so many sex workers are disabled because workplaces in general are inaccessible, says Caradonna. I think it's really important to acknowledge that sex worker and disability rights movements are essentially the same thing. Deaf people are paying thousands to learn their own language. By Leah Modell. COP26 was an accessibility nightmare. For two weeks straight, the UK government made it clear how little thought it gives to deaf and disabled people. After waiting outside for two hours, an Israeli minister and wheelchair user was forced to give up trying to access the climate summit and return to her hotel. Meanwhile, despite a judge ruling that the Cabinet Office had breached equality law by failing to provide a British Sign Language interpreter for its COVID-19 data briefings, all but one of Boris Johnson's press conferences in Glasgow were delivered without one visible. This episode is but the latest in the government's long and varied history of failing disabled people, and deaf people specifically. Audism that is, prejudice towards and discrimination against deaf people, is ingrained in our society. Public services are still heavily reliant on telephone and auditory communication, in a way that makes information about train disruptions during a visit to London impossible for me to understand. In the arts, cinemas are completely inaccessible to us, with subtitled screenings at 1pm on a Monday implying that deaf people don't work. Education is a key arena of audism in British society. This dates at least to the 1981 Education Act, which prioritised educating children with special educational needs in mainstream schools, rather than in specialist establishments. The aftershocks of such legislation are still felt today. Last year, the Consortium for Research into Deaf Education found that one in ten teaching assistants for deaf children and 7% of communication support workers had been cut from England schools since 2018. This year, deaf pupils fell an entire GCSE grade behind their hearing peers for the sixth year running. Things hardly improve when deaf people enter employment. In 2017, the Equality and Human Rights Commission found that deaf people are twice as likely to be unemployed as hearing people. While research by the National Deaf Children's Society last year revealed that two-thirds of deaf young people would hide their deafness on a job application. Meanwhile, more and more spaces where deaf people would gather and connect are closing. While the deaf community continues to have a strong presence on social media platforms, few deaf clubs and opportunities for deaf people to congregate in person remain. The impact of this is significant. When Walsall Deaf People's Centre closed in May 2019, the local community mourned the loss of a lifeline. Robert G. Lee, a senior lecturer in BSL and Deaf Studies at the University of Central Lancashire, told British Deaf News in 2018, What you saw at the Deaf Club was everybody from babies up to people in their 90s. A whole range of deaf people. I learned to communicate with people of different ages and genders, whereas now people tend to hang out with those of a similar age to them. People don't get to see the range of community that the deaf clubs offered. That was my experience, he said. As Britain's deaf community continues to be marginalised, it falls to language, in our case British Sign Language, to keep us together. Yet even this is under attack. This became apparent to me back in 2014, when I took my first steps in the deaf community. Hailing from a small area in Bedfordshire, I didn't know many other deaf people locally. It was through a National Charities Youth Board that I met other deaf people from across the UK and I started to learn BSL from other members. While I'm of the view that BSL isn't a mandatory part of being in the deaf community, I owe a lot of the opportunities which have come my way in the past seven years and the connections I've made to knowing a fair amount of sign language. 
It is therefore shameful that students who communicate in BSL are still waiting for a GCSE in their first language. The Department for Education continues to drag its feet over something it first promised in 2018, after deaf schoolboy Daniel Gillings threatened legal action. I wish I could learn more of the language myself, but accredited courses cost hundreds, even thousands of pounds. It's one thing that hearing people can't learn sign language, and so break down a communication barrier between the hearing and deaf. It's another when deaf people can't even access their own language. To avoid a dangerous class divide within an already marginalised subculture, we must move away from a society in which language is paywalled. The government must adequately fund educational support for deaf children and accelerate work on a British Sign Language GCSE, which can open up the language to so many more people. It also has an opportunity with Labour MP Rosie Cooper's BSL Bill, which looks to make BSL an official language of the United Kingdom. It was recognised by the government in 2003, but this did not grant it legal status. Set up a BSL council to advise on the language and establish principles for the use of BSL in public services. Despite being supported by the British Deaf Association, alongside eight other organisations representing deaf people, it's unclear whether the Conservatives will back the bill. In 2015, then Minister for Disabled People, Justin Tomlinson, said the government had no appetite to grant legal status to BSL, and there's little evidence to suggest the Tories have shifted their stance since. Yet the impact of a BSL Act would be huge. Not just giving BSL the status it deserves, but cohering the deaf community and enabling us to participate fully in wider society. It's time for the government to finally make good its promise to introduce a BSL GCSE and throw its support behind a BSL bill when it has its second reading in January. Autism is not a disease by Jodie Hare Autism is one of the strangest diagnoses I've received in that everybody purports to be an expert in what it means or at the very least to have some very strongly held beliefs about it. When I started researching autism a few years ago as I began my own diagnosis process I realised how prevalent and deep-seated misinformation is and how often well-known stereotypes are used to enact harm. Despite a growing neurodiversity movement, by and large, the way in which society behaves towards and understands autistic people does not appear to be improving. Everybody seems to think they know what autism is, and everybody seems to agree that it's a bad thing. This is evident in studies and therapies that aim to cure autism. It's explicit in the casual use of autistic as an insult, a shorthand for awkward and socially inept. It's even visible in something as simple and apparently benign as the way we use language to discuss autism. Most autistic people have been told at some point by a non-autistic person that they should use person-first language, person with autism, person with a disability, to describe themselves. While better intentioned than those who make autistic explicitly synonymous with a social deficit, These people often refuse to acknowledge that not only do many studies demonstrate that identity-first language, autistic person, disabled person, is preferred by the majority of the autistic community, but that refusing to use it contributes to disabilist discrimination. The implication, of course, in using person-first language is that autistic is not an identity anybody would want to own. Instead, it makes autism sound like a disease. Treating autism as a disease, rather than a neurotype that exists as a result of natural biological variation, paves the way for a level of discrimination and stigmatisation that would not be acceptable if it were applied to other minority groups. At worst, it raises serious fears of eugenics. But the traditional understanding of autism as a deficit also plays a huge role in day-to-day discrimination against autistic people and perhaps explains why research shows that neurotypical peers 
are less willing to interact with those with autism based on thin-sliced judgments. Essentially, the proliferation of knee-jerk assumptions about autistic people, the idea that we are inherently wrong rather than just different, is stopping non-autistic people from making an effort to engage with us and hindering the building of a world where autistic people would be valued members of society, safe from harm and free from isolation. Autistic researcher Dr. Damian Milton describes this as the double empathy problem. When people with very different experiences of the world interact, they will inevitably struggle to empathise with each other, Milton explains. Currently, autistic people are expected to span the entire gulf between our perspective and the neurotypical perspective. In order to improve the lives of autistic people, non-autistic people must begin to shift their view of us and try to understand the way that we experience the world. Suggesting we are inherently faulty puts the onus solely on us to change or be cured, rather than encouraging neurotypicals to meet us halfway. Throughout history, the message that autistic people must adjust their behaviour, or have it adjusted for them, to match that of non-autistic people, has remained constant, with cures for autism, ranging from chemical castration and bleach enemas to behavioural therapy. Even in research settings, where you would hope misinformation would be tackled, not spread, autistic people are routinely pathologised and dehumanised. Today, in 2021, the gold standard treatment for autistic children remains Applied Behaviour Analysis, ABA, a type of therapy that uses operant and respondent conditioning to, in the words of its founder, 1960s psychologist Ole Ivor Lovas, try to make autistic people normal. ABA is increasingly controversial within the autistic community with opposition to its use growing all the time, as many autistic adults share their personal experience of being harmed by the treatment as a child. Academics have backed this up, saying the treatment manifests systemic violations of the fundamental tenets of bioethics and places a burden on autistic people by defining therapeutic success primarily in terms of autists' ability to fit into normal societal structures. But despite increasing evidence that these therapies don't work and may cause mental health conditions including PTSD, families desperate to support their children may feel they have no other option when there is shockingly little support available. Given the marginalisation, discrimination and brutal treatment that autistic people face from childhood, it's no wonder autistic adults have repeatedly been found to be more vulnerable to many different negative life events than non-autistic people and to be at increased risk of violent victimisation. Discrimination is also never applied equally. Autistic people experiencing multiple forms of oppression, whether that's through, for example, being multiply disabled, a woman or a person of colour, are often even more marginalised. This is exacerbated by the myth that autism is only prevalent amongst white men, a common misconception that creates barriers to diagnosis for BAME people, women, and anyone else who doesn't fit the stereotype, preventing access to support. As disability justice educator and organiser Lydia K. Brown writes, we can't address disability without addressing race. Research shows that in the UK alone, thousands of autistic women and girls are going undiagnosed due to gender bias, causing untold damage to their mental health. Understanding that something about your experience of the world is different, while being unable to understand what that thing is, often compounded by having your thoughts about what it might be invalidated by both medical and non-medical sources, can lead to an intense urge, or even an unconscious decision, to suppress your natural behaviours in order to fit into wider society. Altering autistic behaviour for this reason is commonly known as camouflaging or masking, and is linked to increased suicide risk. Asking neurodivergent people to fit into a disabled society is crushing individuals in the community, but many autistic people and their families feel it is the only option in a world that is so hostile to autistic people. Instead of forcing them to change, 
neurotypicals should embrace difference. They should accept that autistic people's intense and sometimes repetitive interests are fundamental parts of our lives, with many advantages, and that actually many of us enjoy relationships of all kinds, we just find that they're easier with other autistic people, perhaps because of the way neurotypicals treat us. It is also worth noting that talking is not the only form of communication. Non-speaking does not equal non-thinking. It's time for non-disabled people to learn how to make the world more accommodating for disabled people and to fight to have these accommodations implemented wherever possible, challenging the Tories' devastating blows to UK health and social care, shifting the cultural understanding and treatment of autism, as well as curating academic research to meet the real priorities of autistic people and their families, is an essential task in this fight. Non-autistic people must meet us halfway, because, despite the obstacles stacked against us, we don't want to change. In a survey of thousands of autistic people, the majority, whether speaking, non-speaking, with or without an intellectual disability, said that they wouldn't take a cure for autism if one were created. I don't want to claim that living as an autistic person is never difficult, but I do want to emphasise in every possible way that every autistic person is deserving of a life, a life where we're valued just as we are. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.